Hi, this is Don Vanatta. Welcome to the SLR Pod, our second edition. We are thrilled today to be joined by Michael Graff. Michael is a writer and editor in North Carolina who recently moved to full-time freelance work after four years as editor of Charlotte Magazine. His work has appeared in Politico, Success, Southwest, Garden and Gun, and others. In May 2017, his three-part series on a high school football team won the City and Regional, Regional Magazine Association's Feature Story of the Year Award, while Charlotte Magazine was a finalist for General Excellence. He's a Maryland native. He's worked as a newspaper reporter for eight years before moving to magazines in 2009. And if you'll recall last week in the Sunday Long Read, Michael's essay was my favorite in the newsletter. It was entitled, Is the Secret to Success Faking It?, which he wrote for Success Magazine. And Michael joins us now. Michael, thank you so much for making the time. Hey, Don. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, congrats, first of all, on your wedding to Laura, who you yeah. wrote about in your essay. It's this Saturday, right? Yes, that's the uh, the appropriate place to start this week, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> and where and when... Uh, on Saturday uh, is the wedding. Uh, 6 p.m. here in Charlotte. Laura's uh, one of the few people you'll meet in Charlotte who's actually a Charlotte native. So um, we're getting married right here, um, just a few miles from, from the house now. So well, very excited. Yeah, well, congratulations, and we're thrilled you're joining us on such a busy week. Um, <laughs> you wrote in your essay about Laura, and we're honest with each other. She won't read this essay before it's published, but nothing in it will surprise her. So I have to ask you, what was Laura's reaction to your essay when she finally got a chance to read it? So it's really funny how this uh, that worked, actually. Uh, I went, I knew that it was out on newsstand, so I went and picked up a copy of the magazine a couple of, or about a week or so ago. But I didn't know when the editors at Success were going to put it online. Um, so I went and uh, I bought a couple of copies and brought it home, and she actually read the print version um, and uh, on the couch. And it's funny when you know you write about somebody you love. You, you <laughs> I kind of walked around the room for a little bit. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, there are some touchy parts in there. Obviously, uh, I was writing about a previous marriage in the middle of that, um, in the middle of the piece. So, and here we are on the verge of, uh, of getting married. And I didn't want, I, I, I'd hoped I didn't drag on too long in that part um, for her. <laughs> um, I hoped I'd been more, I'd hoped that, I hope that the, the essay leaned more optimistic, obviously in the end for her. I hope she took it that way. And she certainly did. She, um, or she laughed a lot toward the beginning and toward the end of the piece. And she especially laughed at the line about how I, um, she, I just, I caught her laughing and I said, what are you laughing? And she said, um, this line about how I wasn't born that way when it um, comes to her career as a PR person, um, because she was she was previously in uh, in TV. So, um, it, it, you know, it's funny to just to do that and uh, and have that experience with her. And she teared up toward the end. And um, overall, she's very pleased with. It. Well, I love I love the piece, Michael. I, I think you just did a fantastic job. It's very funny, very insightful, and uh, I want to read a paragraph that I really, in particular, love, and uh, I want to read it right now. My ex-wife's name is Laura, too. I should mention that. People who entered my life after the divorce cock their head sideways when I tell them. They ask if it's uncomfortable, a question that reveals they have little understanding of what 
Life's like in the chimney of divorce, the memories of a once happy relationship floating past you like charred newsprint in the smoke. Names are something we wear. The death of a marriage is something we live with. Not everything in this world is a good sign or a bad sign or a sign at all. Some things are just coincidences. It's just a fantastic paragraph and, and I think really captures the spirit of the piece for our listeners if they haven't read it. I urge you to go and, uh, and find it. Um, when you were writing it, did you tell Laura you were going to deal with your, your first marriage? Was there any communication at all with her about it when you were in the process of writing the piece? But yes, she did know that it was coming. And, um, but it didn't necessarily change the writing process or my mood while I was writing it because I'm a pretty focused person when I write anyway. And I sort of, I sort of shut everything out for days, um, for a day, at least a day. And then, you know, we have dinner that night, but during the days I, I pretty, I pretty much shut things out. And so it didn't necessarily change things for me. It's just that when I was shutting things out this time, I was thinking about something that was deeply personal. And the line, I love the line to be successful, feel successful. And of course, you were writing this for Success Magazine. How did the editors react to that? You know, being actually the editors of a magazine called Success and something that goes right to the heart of really what the mission of the magazine is and the sort of takeaway line of your essay. I never knew what to expect when I first took the first um, assignment for them, but I've kind of hit a groove with them, I feel like, in writing for them because I feel like I'm, I'm a part of their target audience in some ways. I'm in my late 30s. I've had a lot of things happen to me, but I have a lot of things that are still going to happen to me. And I feel like there's an audience there that, um, that, 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 that connects with that. So um, that, and I, I, I go to the library a lot. I do a lot of reading when, I, when I'm working on these essays for them just to try to find what I'm really writing about and to try to research that too. So... So I, I just went through the library, and there's a whole section in the library on that that I sort of walk to every time I'm working on a success essay, believe it or not. And you can just sort of look through the spines of the books and see things that you find. And I um, I wound up finding the one book called The End of Average, and um, just read that and pretty quickly, and uh, was fascinated by all of the the ways we try to compare ourselves to, to average and just how sort of flawed that is. Um, like I said in the essay, I said, you know, the average person has like kisses, maybe 15 people in her life. And so we immediately look at that and say, well, I've only kissed 12. I'm not doing enough, you know, <laughs> or something like that. That's, that's one of the things I, I was most moved by in, in your essay is that sort of that average, that benchmark that we all do in our lives when we when we hear these sort of these media numbers yeah. or these statistics we're always comparing and uh and you just toss that aside i think you trash that idea pretty convincingly actually yeah, so. yeah. well todd rose the author of the book trashed it to before i before i give credit to the author there but um yeah it's um but back you know in the 1800s when average was sort of seen as ideal um you know, that was sort of the, especially when you talked about men in the armies um, in Scotland, that that's what they, they thought average was ideal. So you wanted a man who was exactly this, uh, exactly five foot eight, you know, exactly this tall, this round around the belly and things like that. And for every inch you were away from that, you were actually less perfect. And here now we have, you know, we suddenly graduated to aspiring to be 
obviously more fits than average, and we always want to beat it now. So we have a mutual friend, uh, the great Carolina-based magazine writer Tommy Tomlinson, who I know is a very good buddy of yours. He's a <laughs> former colleague of mine at ESPN, and uh, I reached out to him this week, and he told me this about you. This is Tommy's quote. Mike, Mike runs quiet but runs <laughs> deep. He's the most insightful guy in the room, but you'd oh, never know it, and he'd never admit it. So I'm going to ask you, is Tommy right? Will you refuse to admit being the most insightful guy in the room? <laughs> yeah, I, especially in a room with Tommy. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, if you've ever been in a room with Tommy, Tommy's always the one with the insight. Um, so, yeah, no, I would, I would certainly not agree with that. I would say that I do lay back a lot, and especially in bigger in, in settings, uh, crowds. We actually have a really good group of, of writers here in Charlotte, um, some folks who work with you at ESPN, actually. And uh, we get together once a month at a, uh, at a bar for drinks. And um, last month, there was a guy, a new guy, a, a guy I knew of, but he was relatively new to the group, and he joined us from the uh, local public radio station, WFAE. And, and I, was, I had just been sitting there for an hour listening to people talk, and he just leaned over and said, do you ever say anything? But, but that's a really important and useful tool to have in a writer's toolbox is to sort of hang back, watch carefully, take a lot of mental notes about what people are doing and saying and how they look as they do and say those things, right? I mean, I'm sure that comes in handy, particularly in essay writing, but also in journalism. I'm sure in straight pieces as well. Just sort of being the quiet observer, I'm sure, is it's worked well for you. Yeah, yeah, it does. And there's... You know, I probably was taught this by 20 editors when I was young in my career. Um, you know, you want to be the fly on the wall. And I would certainly rather do that than be a part of the story. That's that's interesting because it's sort of we've, we've, we've grown as a uh, <laughs> in writing into a place where writers are constantly <clears throat> part of the story. And um, it's it's. I don't know that it's made it more difficult, but it, it certainly is. Uh, <clears throat> people are always surprised when they when I'm doing profiles that I'm that are hanging out with me that I'm just I'm like really like, just please live your life and you will forget that I'm here. Um, and uh, I do that now with people in my life, and because of this essay writing thing that I, that I've gone on and uh, and been asked to do more and more of and. And I think they get spooked a little bit now. I've actually had some folks, uh, <laughs> Laura's family's like, don't say too much around him. Uh, you know, things like that. Because he's always listening. And, uh, and it's true. Do you find it difficult to inject yourself um, into your profiles? I, I find it sometimes hard. It's got to really be, for me, organic and natural to the storytelling. Otherwise, it feels forced. And I can't stand the magazine yeah. profiles, I'm sure you will agree, where... It's all about the writer and how cool the writer is hanging out, you know, uh, at Lake Como with George Clooney. Um, you know, th th those kind of profiles I quickly get bored of. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I, the only time I ever do it is really if it's just it, it moves the story forward and it's natural. Yeah, you do a great job with it. And I, I think you and I are in agreement on that. I mean, some folks, it's it's got to be really subtle. Um, you know, there was an old way of thinking that if you are in the story, you have to make this dramatic change uh, to be in it. You know, the, 
I think that uh, you know you'd be taught never use I in a story unless you are a character who makes a dramatic change in the story. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case anymore. But I think if you're writing profiles of people, if you can subtly, I mean, if it's just natural and you could and you have to insert yourself if you feel like you have to to say we were here when he or she told me this. <laughs> And that's sort of a necessary part of the story. Then I think it's okay. It's, but I, when I'm writing about other people, I generally try to to insert it if I have to insert it. If it makes it easier on the reader, um, I hope to insert it in a way that they don't even notice that I'm there. This is Tommy's question for you, which I love. How does someone who's naturally introverted, like you are, build up the courage to be so revealing in your writing? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What are, what are friends for, um, right? I'm going to send him a text message here now. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really have done recon. Um, the, I think because in an essay, um, that wall is gone off, off the top, right? We already know that you don't have to straddle anything. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to worry what... Um, whether you're going to be in there or not, because it's a decision you have to make when you're writing about other people in every story, and you don't have to worry about that. So it's already gone. And so then, if you're going to be good to the reader and you're going to make it worthwhile, you better be honest um, in that case. And, um, and it's been easier for me to be honest as I've gotten older. <laughs> um, because... Some of the things that happened, especially some of the things that happened in that essay, sucked. Um, they were really, they were awful, traumatic experiences. And not that I had it wor any worse than anybody else, but they were hard. And um, and so, if you're gonna if you're gonna make a reader interested in anything that you write as an essay, you better be honest and truthful. So I just go into it and try to be as honest as I can. And I really, I. I report on myself um, when I'm going through the process. Like I will, uh, I will go to the ends of the earth to find the little details on how much uh, the tank of gas was at this particular in this particular area in 1986. If I'm writing from memory about that, um, just to try to remember, even just to, if I'm writing about, say, my dad, like how much he would have spent on that tank of gas in 1986, and um, just. Just little things like that, and you really report yourself. And so then, if you just sort of turn the table on yourself, then it becomes easy because then you're just doing the job. And writing about stuff that's really hard that you had to do in this in this essay, uh, your most recent essay, you find it therapeutic. Um, in the the process, yeah, I would say it is. And then you send it in, <laughs> and then. And then you do crazy things like ask for it back, to have it back, um, which I did with this one. Um, and they said no, thankfully. Um, yeah, as soon as I sent it, I immediately had regrets and just, and maybe not regrets, but just worry. Uh, I've gone through all this process, but uh-oh, um, maybe that was a little too close. And so I ask for it back and then we go through the dance where the editors say no and then they uh, they keep it and they say it's fine, it's fine, it's fine and then it comes out and I would say that the process of having other people read it is not, um, I wouldn't say it's therapeutic, 
um, it's it's just nice when it means something to them. Um, the, the the therapeutic part is the actual act of writing. The um, when it when it's out there in the world, you never know. I mean, a reader brings his or her own experiences to every story, so you never know how that person will react. But in this case, it's been nice. A few folks have reached out who are going through divorce right now, and they said it's nice that uh, to know that there's hope out there. Yeah, there's nothing better than that as a writer. That that feedback is just uh, it's the best. When you when you when you when you write something, if it just touches one person, it makes all the anguish yeah. that goes into the piece, whether it's an essay or a piece of journalism, so worth it. Um, I recently wrote a very short essay for the newsletter about my experience with Hurricane Irma, um, you know, the brush with it, um, riding out the storm with my mom and my two daughters and our, our black lab, Marley. And it's, it's funny, I didn't really I didn't want to write it. I felt like I needed to write it. Like all week I kept kind of talking myself out of it. It was a crazy busy week with the aftermath of the storm. We were hopping from house to house. Finally ended up in a hotel. And I sort of woke up in the middle of the night, Friday night, and just sort of said, okay, got up and banged it out in about 45 minutes. I felt like I needed to write it. So I wanted to ask you about the sort of need to write something versus something you may want to write. And was this a essay yeah. something you felt like you had to write or was it something you wanted to write? I'll start by sort of asking, I guess, looking at your essay and thinking, I mean, thinking about it, the great thing about that was is that you give people a perspective that they wouldn't otherwise have. I mean, I didn't go through the storm. So I think you as a writer, um, when you say you needed to write it, I think it's, that's the writer in you, maybe. I mean, do you think that that was the truth? Yeah, it's almost as if you have the feeling as a writer that when I say need, it's if you don't do it, you're really going to regret it. It's the same thing in life, right? I mean, if there's an opportunity, you know, you have a tough choice to make a decision, let's say, about a job or a relationship. If you feel like the regret is going to outweigh the risk, uh, that's sort of what it felt like with that. And look, it's a, it was a very short 600-word or 700-word quick quick essay, um, nothing compared to what you you accomplished with your essay. But but that need versus want, I, I often I have that choice when it comes to writing something or, or you know, beyond writing. And so I was just curious, it occurred to me, you know, thinking about your essay last night, whether it was something you just felt you had to do, whether it was emotionally or whether it was just a story too good not to tell, I guess, is what I'm wondering. Yeah, I think I, I always knew that I would write about um, my divorce at some point. I certainly wasn't ready to do it. Um, I wasn't ready to do much even a year after it, you know. Um, and so I knew I was going to do it at some point, and I just, this just happened to be the time that I did it. Um, I don't know that it was a need, but I do feel like that as I was writing it, the need, the, the need that the, the feeling I felt of, that I needed to do it, like when that came in, it was almost like I needed to do it to try to help anybody else who might um, be going through it. And that's, right. it's because I knew what it was, I know what it's like where I am now. And I just, and I knew, and I can remember what it was like then. And I even have those notes about what it was like then. And I was just thinking, and it may not even be a divorce. It may just be a tough job, you know, maybe a time in your job that you're not happy with, or just for whatever reason you're going through something. And I just thought that it might be a chance to help somebody. 
Well, it's, it's great to hear that you've gotten that feedback, and uh, it doesn't surprise me to hear that you have. Um, the first piece of yours, Michael, that I remember reading and really noticing your great talent was a story from 2014. It was also an essay in Washingtonian Magazine about your father's long-ago life as a sports parachutist, which I reread last night. The story's entitled, My Dad Jumped Out of a Plane More Than 1,000 Times. Of course, I Had to Try It, Too. Uh, and your dad's nickname, Fearless Freddy Giraffe. Uh, it's, it's just a fantastic piece about your father. It's about mortality, about attempting to follow in your dad's footsteps, all sorts of life lessons um, that your father taught you. Um, I want to read an excerpt, just a short one. This is a paragraph that really jumped off the page at me last night um, before we talk about the, about the piece. At no point has his life been easy. He's been a heavy drinker and quit that. He's been electrocuted and walked that off. He once took a line drive to the head at one of my baseball practices, and when the ambulance arrived, he told the driver to go back to where he came from. He spent much of his youth getting whipped by nuns and his father. Yet when he became a father himself, he never struck me or my brother, Kenny, not once. He grew up afraid not of a belt or any open hand, but of disappointment. Just a lovely paragraph. Um, what made you want to write that piece about your father? What was the moment that you know sort of spoke to you? I really want to write about my dad. I'd never, I had written essays before that, um, and I had written uh, editor's notes before that for the magazine, for Charlotte magazine, and um, they. When I started writing the editor's notes, the more personal I got with them, um, the more response I would get. I noticed that people really seemed to take the approach of, uh, people really seemed to take to those stories as opposed to stories when I would say, list five things that we could improve about the city or something like that. And I was sitting at a conference actually and um, listening to people uh, listening to a panelist and I don't even remember who it was but it just it's, it's, it's like it happens at a nonfiction conference or any kind of journalism conference that you go to it's if you take you sit there for long enough and you're like I'm not getting anything I'm not getting anything and then boom that one thing happens and I don't know what it was but I remember sitting there and writing down pelicans on a sheet of paper and that was the skydiving team that my dad was a part of they would travel around the country and jump out of planes and try to land on targets that were smaller than your dinner plates and they would jump from 10,000 feet and land on these targets and I had just you know dad had just started talking about that after his strokes he had never um, he had never mentioned he we we knew that he had jumped out of planes but we didn't know to what extent and he had never really talked about it to us as as boys and, and but when he had these strokes he started to forget what he was doing, what he had done yesterday, and he started to really remember what he had done in the 60s, and he started to tell these stories. And I just listened to them. And at the time, when I pitched it to uh, the Washingtonian, uh, my editor there, uh, Denise, I actually pitched it to her over uh, a beer, and she said, God, that sounds like a book, but let's figure this out. And I said, well, let's just write about the Pelicans, maybe. Let's just... Uh, Let's just write about this crazy group of men who jump, jump, ran around. And she said, we can do that. <laughs> but 
it also has to be personal. And that's when it got scary, obviously. <laughs> and I remember calling my brother and saying, I think we're going to have to jump out of a plane. <laughs> and, and he said, okay, sure. And, uh, and then, of course, I was in contact with all these great skydivers. And I said, you know, I think I'm just going to do this tandem skydive. Uh, which is, you know, you go on there with, uh, you sort of strapped to another experienced skydiver and he does all the work and she, or she does all the work and everything. And then all these old, old guys were like, no, 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 you've got to do the real thing. So Kenny and I took the class to uh, jump um, all by ourselves. And the great thing about writing all these essays now is it has, uh, it's just caused you to reflect on family relationships and things like that. And I think my, my family and I are probably closer than we were now or closer than we were then now because of how, um, because of these essays. You had referenced this earlier in our conversation um, about, you know, details and how you go and, you know, for that gallon of gas in 1986. And one of the things I was struck by is you actually purchased your dad's medical record since 2008 and found all of these fascinating details, some of which you didn't even understand because of course they were written in, you know, Dr. E's. Um, but uh, the authenticity that writing, that details bring to writing is something that I talk about often when I talk to, to college students um, who want to be journalists. And uh, you clearly, in your writing, one of the things I was struck by last night going through a lot of your pieces are details, too. You value them. The black label beer that your dad drank, and you know, and I don't want to give too much away about your piece, but that, that comes back uh, toward the end. And, and you, you do what I also try to do as a writer. These details, you'll sometimes, there's payoffs to them, right? If you can find out something and then and then you can bring it back later in an authentic way. Uh, it's just almost a sort of touchstone or, or a template for the reader, um, where the reader recognizes it. And clearly you, you did that, you do that in all your writing, but I think you really did it here. I wanted you just to talk about the importance of details and, and, and what you try to set out when you're doing a piece like this and making those details uh, sparkle. Yeah, I think... Um... The thing you try to do is try to collect uh, 10 times more than you need. And the hard part is just what you're cutting out um, at that point. And that happened with that piece. I mean, I was, I had so much stuff that that would just, that would have made it just way too long and nobody would have ever finished it. So the hard part was just finding out the things that, that you wanted to keep. And I remember uh, I heard Frank DeFord speak one time and he said, that the endings of stories are, he said, well, throughout the story, you set up little bells along the way. And then, and then you, at the end, you come back through with your hand and you ring them all. And that's, you know, what I try to do. That's what I've, as an editor, I've tried to teach our writers to do. I've encouraged them to think about that analogy when you're, when you're building up to the ending of a story. Um, set up those little details, set up those little details, and then come back through and try to play a song with them all at the end. You were editor of Charlotte Magazine for four years, Michael, and now you're you're back doing full time freelance. What do you? What's more fun? What's more rewarding? Writing or editing? That's wow. Um, that can't be a black and white answer. Um, <laughs> there are uh, things about each that I love. 
and things about each that uh, are more difficult than others. Um, but in editing, I mean, if, at some point in a career, you reach a point in a career where people are asking you questions, where you stop doing mostly asking and people start asking you questions. And that happened to me when I became the editor of the magazine, and it was really rewarding. Um, I got to help people. I got to uh, to to try to build young writers. You know, I got to find young writers who were in their early twenties, fresh out of college, and who I got to give them their first magazine assignment and work with them on it and try to um, just impart whatever I knew, um, which is not as much as most people know, but it's. Uh, it's just try to help in some way and just try to remember all the lessons that people taught me. And we had some great success with some young writers. So those types of things as, as an editor, I mean, um, you just can't replace when you're working at home. Um, you can't, you can't, um, the, I don't know that, I just don't know that I'll ever get that kind of uh, reward from seeing a story of mine published. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's nice that I can read again. I can read other things again. Uh, when you're an editor, you spend time, you spend most of your time reading only your emails and uh, pitches and the stories that you're working on. Um, so it's nice to, it's been nice to branch out again and, and read some, some things for pleasure. Um, and just have more time to think and write and, uh, and writing is why I got into the business. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I love your answer. I remember um, I had a colleague of mine at the New York Times who said, you know, you give up the byline when you become an editor, um, which is not easy, depending on the size of your ego, I guess. Um, but, but what you get in exchange is the vicarious pleasure uh, of other people's work that you help yeah. lift, lift up. And, and I remember him saying for him that was actually a, a pretty good trade. Um, uh, yeah. So, but did editing help you become a better writer? Do you find that it's easier now after four years in the editing chair to write pieces? <laughs> it's in some ways it's harder. You know, I I'm a huge um, E. B. White fan. I've I've read just about everything that E. B. White ever wrote, and um, you know, his obviously his wife Catherine was an editor, and he wrote of her about how writing was such a painful process for her because she was an editor and uh, it was just easier for him but it was harder for her, more difficult for her because she was constantly editing and I have found that that is true I mean you it's hard to just free write you know and write the embarrassing thing that nobody is going to ever read um, so you have you so you have you as an editor in your head as you're writing right which is not easy and the E.B. White example is a, is a perfect one you know, I mean, if you've never been an editor before, you've never had to do that. Use no. those muscles. You know, so it's somebody else's problem, right? You're going to write it as best you can, and then you get to turn it over. And how are you, as since you've been an editor for four years, now that you're being edited, how do you respond to that, to that process? Are you more open to edits than you might have been? Yeah. So, yeah, they both played, they certainly, doing both roles helped me um, manage the relationship. I think I have better relationships with editors now because I've been an editor <laughs> and I think I had better relationships with writers because I'd been a writer. Um, I think that, that they, they certainly work hand in And Michael, how old were you when you sort of knew you could write? You know, when, you, when, you, when you knew you had a voice, when you sort of found your voice, when, when, when did that happen? 
I don't know. I've met people who could write really early. Um, my I had an 11th grade English teacher who told me I was actually an A math student and a C English student. And I had an 11th grade English teacher who told my mother on parent teacher night that I should focus on math. Um, and it ticked me off just enough that I uh, that I really never lost that. And I really I just wanted to I kind of wanted to show him and. Um, and so I went to college, and I had a, I got a great mentor there who helped me uh, a lot, and uh, he he helped form a voice uh, of some kind. And then I got into sports writing, and um, early in my career, I was a newspaper reporter, just covering high school sports at twenty five thousand circulation papers. Um, and um, I guess just tried to learn everything I could from people I admired from Gary Smith and all those folks and tried to just read everything I could on them and um, just kind of continued to develop it. Um, and so, interestingly enough, that teacher did read a story of mine at one point and emailed me to tell me. Oh, that's fantastic. Was. And that was probably, that was in 2013. That was one of the bigger moments of my career. <laughs> that sort of early moment when you're told you can't do something that you have a passion for, the jet fuel that that puts in your tank is yeah. so important. I've, I've talked to so many friends who are writers that have similar experiences early on. I had one too. I had one in college, a freshman at, at BU. I was working for the Daily Free Press, and I remember these two older uh, editors laughing at, at something I had written. And man, oh yeah, man, it made me mad. It just made me really, really mad and really determined. And then I'm glad. I'm glad they did. Because, you know, that, that you, you take so much from that. You know, you remember those moments. And, um, you know, the desire to prove somebody wrong about you is uh, a pretty powerful, yeah. uh, powerful mo motivator. Yeah. And then I'm sure you have friends who also who also found that they were going to be great writers when they were in sixth grade or something like that. And those people always yeah, you know, try to be crazy. I mean, it's yeah. supposed to be hard. You know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear from anybody who tells me it's easy. Um, what piece of writing of yours, Michael, received um, the most feedback, the sort of the, the biggest sort of avalanche, whether it was good or bad from readers? Honestly, the one that I got the most feedback on, there was a, a short editor's note that I did in 2015. There was a guy named Cole Waddell, um, he had worked in advertising in New York for um, his entire career, and he was late '60s, early '70s, I guess. Um, when he emailed, and he he emailed just randomly out of the blue. He lived south of Charlotte, and he wanted a story published on an old department store where he used to work. Which he used to work when he was a kid, when he was in college. And um, his email came in just like most emails, and you're just like, I don't have time for this right now. But for whatever reason, I read his story on the plane home for Christmas that year. And uh, I said, I, you know, I don't know if it was like the spirit of the season or whatever. I said, oh, we could work with this. And I sent him a note to say, you know, let's, let's talk about moving forward with this. And um, he was so grateful at every step of the process. And we worked through the edits and probably we sent it to fact check in mid March um, to be, um, published in the May issue, and I had sort of lost contact with him after that, you know, I said, you know, send, in, send me an invoice um, at some point, whenever you want, and some people send those faster than others, <laughs> and, um, and of course he had 
had an entire career. And, uh, but it was his first magazine piece and he was excited to get it published. So it was weird when he didn't email or say anything when he, when it came out. And, uh, I had, I got an email, uh, from a reader who said she had just read the story. So she Googled Cole Waddell and looked him up and she found an obit on him. And I, uh, it, this was a day before we were going to send our, I had written another editor's note that week and we were sending an issue, another issue, the next issue to the printer. And, um, so I just, I couldn't believe it. And I just called, I called the Lancaster news. I called the newspaper where he lived. I said, does anybody know him? I happened to find a feature writer there who had heard of him through another friend or something like that. And she put me in touch and, um, they, uh, I found out that he had basically, after 9-11, he had lived in New York. After 9-11, he had moved back to Lancaster and sort of become a, uh, a bit of a hermit and had lived there on Oreo cookies. Um, lived there kind of was just like puttering around the house in a wheelchair and was eating Oreo cookies mostly and had lost tons of weight, actually. He was low and he was 80 to 90 pounds or whatever at the time he died. Um, he actually died eating, choking on an Oreo cookie. Um, and I just couldn't believe this story. And uh, so I wrote an editor's note about that that month. Um, and it went online. And I don't know that I've ever seen an editor's note do this, but some one person shared it with another person, another person shared it with another person. And the next thing I knew, the New York Times was putting it on their what we were reading list. And you know, Romanesco picked it up and I'm looking on the back end and it's just like thousands of people are reading this story. And, uh, I just thought it was a pretty amazing that this guy had dreamed his entire life of writing and seeing a story published and he never got to see it published. And then for that day or two days or whatever that it was going all around the country and, you know, David Grant, who's like a personal idol of mine, tweeted about it, that it was a beautiful story. And I just, I just thought how much Cole would have loved that, you know? Fantastic. Um, all right, well, we're going to end with another Tommy Tomlinson tip. Uh, Tommy's uh, final question for you is, if you could eat just one more crab cake in your life, where would you go? <laughs> oh, Stoney's. Um, Stoney's in Solomon's, Maryland. Solomon's Island, Maryland. Yeah. No question about it. It comes out the size of a softball, and uh, that 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 Tommy, that was an easy answer. Well, Michael, I've really enjoyed this. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you making the time. Congratulations again. You know, congratulations again on Saturday. Uh, all the best to you and Laura. Uh, much happiness and uh, continued success with your writing. Yeah, thank and we'll you, keep, Don. Uh, putting you on the long read. You've been on the Sunday long read four times, um, which is which is pretty, which is pretty remarkable, actually. I think that's certainly among the list leaders. So um, uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, know, you We got to get that. you to be a contributing thank editor now, so you can you can do the hard work one week. We'd love to do that. But uh, after the honeymoon, Absolutely. at some point, we'll. I can uh, do it. Have you do yeah. it. Where are you going on the honeymoon? Eleuthera in the Bahamas. Uh, there's a the sort of guilty feeling now after these hurricanes have done so much damage to other islands that our island the island that we happen to choose um irma went south of it and uh, maria went east of it and it's still there um and and as the same condition it was a month ago so beach it's it's beautiful you're gonna have a great time it's it's uh it's lovely there so 
That's great, man. Well, enjoy and thank you again so much. Uh, that was that was Michael Graff, writer and editor in North Carolina, who recently moved to full time freelance after four years as editor of Charlotte Magazine. Uh, we are going to link uh, to all the work that we discussed here on the Sunday Long Read this Sunday. I want to tell you guys that uh, soon we're going to get Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham here. They're like herding cats to get them together, but we will. And you should hit us up via our email address for other writers you'd like us to chat with here on the SLR pod. This is Don Van Natta. Thank you so much for listening. We'll do it again soon.